Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Uh, we are back. Uh, now, you may say, well, we've not been anywhere, but uh, I wasn't here last week. Uh, not the end of the world, although, uh, well, having said that, <laughs> these days I'm not sure you can say that. But um, anyway, we're back, and it's been a very busy time, of course. And the first thing to say is, you know, since we were, since we last gathered together, two extraordinary uh, tournaments, two extraordinary winners, Fan Zhengzhi and Joe Perry, from two ends of the kind of experience spectrum, obviously Fan just 21, it's all new to him, came through the pack, beat Ronnie O'Sullivan to win the European Masters. And Joe Perry, 47 years of age, second oldest winner of a ranking event, uh, winning the Welsh Open, beating Judd Trump in the final. And it's worth pointing out, you know, the draw did not open up for these two. They had to beat some real top players, not just O'Sullivan and Trump respectively, but, <clears throat> excuse me, along the way, a lot of uh, top names and, uh, yeah, just incredible. And it just, it's a very unpredictable season. Someone asked me on Twitter, is this the most unpredictable snooker season you can remember? And I would say, yes, it's, um, there's no narrative to it. Obviously, Neil Robertson has come good three times. But it just seems to be whoever produces it any given week, and it underlines the strength and depth in the tour. That the fact that you know anyone basically, it seems at the moment, can come through the pack and win a tournament. Um, and as we head towards the World Championship, we're, we're about a month from the qualifying beginning. You know, you start to wonder: is there going to be a shot winner at the Crucible? You always sort of, we always like to narrow down the field and say who can win, who can't win. But you know, maybe, maybe shaping up that a qualifier might win it again. We'll see. It's a different beast, of course. But it is true that some of the, the top players are not quite firing at the moment. I mean, Trump struggled in that tournament. He didn't play well in the final. Didn't play great in the event. He battled really well in that semi-final against the same Vafai. But he's yet to really hit his stride. I mean, it says a lot, I suppose, that he can get to the final playing like that. And O'Sullivan as well. He seems to have developed... I know he won the World Grand Prix, but he's developed... A bit of an issue in finals, really. I mean, he lost five last season. Um, he was a big favourite to beat Fan, but, you know, Fan took the game to him and played really well, deserved the win. So two very interesting tournaments since we, uh, since we last gathered together. By the way, we should, uh, we should thank Jake Humphrey, the, uh, British sports presenter, uh, for saving the podcast because, uh, 
he <laughs> he put up a tweet last week saying that because uh, he does a he does a podcast, a high performance podcast, he calls it, um, you know, very very with great humility, and uh, it's for people who are high achievers uh, like him. And um, he said, oh yes, two years ago people said uh, don't do a podcast, they're very niche. Now I'm pretty sure two years ago my postman was doing a podcast, uh, but anyway, uh, of course I started this seven years ago, and indeed every year someone has said to me, please don't do a podcast. But anyway, we we continue. Anyway, uh, it turns out that podcasting is big big business, and uh, I like to think of this as the low performance podcast, uh, my performance mainly. But anyway, we, we're not here to uh, talk about Jake Humphrey. Uh, we're here to go through the emails. There's a lot of built up over the two weeks, and um, let's start with our dear friend Alpha Bonzi. Enjoying the podcast as usual. Three quick questions this week. I'll answer them one in one after another. That's, that's the usual way. Uh, he says, how has Victoria Xi developed such a great eye for young Chinese talent? Now, of course, Victoria runs the Victoria Academy in Sheffield, uh, just by the Crucible. And uh, for many years, she's looked after a lot of the Chinese players. Uh, not all of them. Some There's three academies. Ding has his own. There's the Star Academy as well. But um, Victoria... He's known, as, as Ronnie said, as a bit of a sort of mother figure. She's looked after the, the players. She arranges kind of their lifestyles, really, and keeps them grounded. Um, has she developed a great eye? Well, I mean, obviously, these players have come through. They're the best players in China. They've come through to the Pro Tour. Um, so they've come through various routes and qualifying, you know, routes and whatever. But uh, Victoria, her great um, role, really, is to, to look after them and, 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 you know, give them that grounding when Ding first came over, he was on his own. Um, he came over at 16, didn't speak the language, very lonely, very difficult. But now there's a great community, and, sh- and she's helped develop that community. And, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's a great success story. I know uh, Phil Haig went to the Academy recently. Um, you can check out his piece in the Metro. Um, uh, I'm not sure it's appeared yet as I speak here. By the way, as I speak here, it's, it's, uh, it should have opened with this, should have started with this. It's Fergal O'Brien's 50th birthday. Friend of the podcast, Fergal O'Brien. A uh, fantastic servant of the sport. And indeed, Ronnie O'Sullivan last week on Eurosport said that, because Fergal is battling for his tour card, he said that he shouldn't have to go to Q School. He should get one of these invitational wild cards because of his service to the sport. And it's quite hard to argue with that. People will. <laughs> people will argue with anything. But actually, you know, he, he has been so dedicated, as we know. Um, I hope he continues uh, playing. And I hope he stays on, you know, as of right. But uh, happy birthday, Fergal. Uh, let's go back to Alpha's email. After Yambingtao, Zhao Jingtong, and now Fang Zhengji, who's next uh, from China? Well, of course, Zhang Ander got to the uh, got to the semis um, of the uh, the Welsh Open. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think th- that's the thing. They're inspiring each other. Yambingtao, you know, broke through. Obviously, Zhou Yulong is in the mix there as well. Uh, Zhao Jingtong winning two tournaments, Fang Zhengji winning the European Masters. Uh, Zhou Yulong would have to be the, the most likely uh, next winner from China. He's already been in a couple of finals. But uh, they're all very dangerous now. This this sort of um, this move uh, from the younger brigade—it's taken a bit longer than maybe people predicted from China, but it is happening clearly. And uh, you know, it, it, it's exciting, and, and it's, it, it bodes well because, of course, we, the tour is looking to go back to China, where there's several big money events. And what a time to be going back there next season, hopefully, with all these guys winning tournaments. I mean, it's just reinvigorated Chinese snooker. Obviously, Ding has fallen back a little bit, but. I think a lot of people are hopeful that he will also be inspired by it. So, it really, what the, I mean, we discussed this uh, a couple of months ago. I think someone wrote in about it. But the time is right, I think, for some sort of team event. You know, China versus whatever, Europe. Don't like the rest of the world particularly, but, but you know, Europe stroke, you know, whatever. Um, 
try and get Neil Robertson involved, whatever. But I mean, they would that would be a really interesting event now because the Chinese team would would be full of winners, full of real, you know, real top players. And Alpha's final final point, which I'm going to wrap up with another email. He says, "What can be done in the UK grassroots if there is one anymore to get Chinese?" to get to China's snooker level. And Matt has written on a similar theme. He said, when you look at the influx of good new players, they're mostly Chinese. Ronnie said, maybe we need to look at the grassroots level. Look at how much China invests in snooker. If we want to find these good players, then maybe we need to do the same, unless the interest isn't there anymore and these youngsters are looking at other sports instead of snooker. At the moment, I'm not convinced the young UK players coming through have what it takes to be successful. OK, well, both making the same point. I mean... When people say we need to invest, who who's going to invest? Um, is it the government? Because we have government funding for particular sports through bodies like Sport England. Uh, snooker does not get any money from that. A lot of the money uh, is targeted at Olympic sports because we win medals and that's good for the country. Um, snooker's not in the Olympics. Uh, do we mean the snooker authorities should invest? Well, snooker tour are charged with running the professional tour um, and that is what they... Now, that is what they do. They're not charged with um, grassroots as such. The WPBSA do have a role in that, and, and they do well. They, they, they are stimulating interest, and there's more interest, I think, in Britain than people realise. But there is an issue with where do you play? You know, there are clubs have shut down. That's just a fact. And there are cultural shifts, and it may be that young people, you know, are not taking up snooker like they once did. Um, and players can play a part as well. You mentioned Ronnie O'Sullivan there. I mean, he would be the ideal figurehead or someone like Judd Trump to come in and try and inspire, you know, a grassroots revival. But, you know, I'm not suggesting they should just do that free of charge. You know, that they would expect, because they're busy people and they have playing careers, they would expect to, to be paid for that. So it comes down to money. It comes down to who's going to fund it. And that's difficult. Ideally, government funding, because in China they do have government funding. And that's, uh, you know been put to great use and, and it's, it's a kind of model for any country but not every government wants to spend money on snooker obviously there's other things they've got to spend money on so it's not easy but I think obviously we're very lucky one thing we are lucky about is there's so much snooker on television so it's very visible as a sport um, and I guess it's and we sort of dis- discussed this before it's also about in digital spaces that young people use how do we Put, put snooker in front of them, make it look interesting, make it look like something they want to get into. There's no magic bullet here, there's no magic wand, there's no magic anything. Um, and there's no magic money tree, actually, that's the other thing to say. But yeah, I mean, ideally, we would have more funding and we would have more more people taking the game up, but you can't just sort of make it happen overnight. Um, but yeah, there's no doubt that, uh, you know, the grassroots are very important, that's certainly true. Now then, on the Welsh Open, uh, Kerry Richards has been there says, a quick email just to, see, to say how much I enjoy my annual visit to the Welsh Open. Conscious I can be accused of bias as a Welshman, but I thought the venue was excellent. I've attended the tournament from its early days as the Welsh Professional Players' Championship at Ebervale Leisure Centre in the mid-80s to the Newport Centre and the Motorpoint Arena. All had their particular charms, but the ICC knocks them all out of the park. I hope it's the new home in the Welsh Open for many years to come. Well, that's good to know, isn't it? You know, it's good to have a positive email like that. I heard very good reports about the the venue, and it was full pretty much every day. I mean, the Welsh, you know, you, you talk about going in the 80s there and that, and that link. The Welsh really do love their snooker, and uh, it, was, it, it was a terrific event, I thought. The Welsh has been, it's always been a great event. It fell away a little bit at one point. It was sort of the poor relation of the circuit, but it's been reinvigorated as part of the home nations, um, and and it stands on its own as well as a, as a, as a great event, 30 years now. 
Um, so good to hear that the, the venue is to your liking, and I, I hope it does stay there. The Newport Centre, um, I believe, is being knocked down. Um, Paul Collier, who lives in Newport, was saying told, told me that uh, it's being knocked down. Um, he went to get his COVID jab there, and, and as I pointed out, uh, plenty of people have got the needle there over the years. Yes, his, his reaction was uh, the same as you, I'm sure yours is to that. Now, the last uh, podcast two weeks ago, we had a, we had a correspondence from a, a, a listener who was essentially saying which snooker players they fancied. And uh, <laughs> Joe McCrossan has gone in, in touch, and she says, uh, "All right, Dave, I'm new, newish to the podcast. Another one who found it during the peak pandemic times. It's become a proper weekly highlight, or indeed, I suppose, fortnightly highlight. Uh, anyway, uh, I've finally stopped mistaking you and Phil Yates for each other when listening to commentary on Eurosport, which is a relief." as it means I no longer spend 20 minutes per match trying to work out which of you is on duty. Uh, just on that, uh, Joe, uh, you may actually be mistaken Phil Yates for Philip Studd, who do, does most of the other Eurosport commentary. Phil's on there sometimes, but uh, anyway, uh, hopefully uh, you, you worked out who's who. Anyway, she says, I felt compelled to email you after this week's discussion of sexy snooker players, a subject I've given a potentially excessive amount of thought to. Sexy snooker players were the reason I started watching snooker. My dad was in charge of the TV throughout my childhood, and I sat through many a snooker match while trying to read whichever babysitter's club book I'd managed to sneak out of the library that week. However, during the 1998 World Championship, a handsome young Scottish player named John Higgins caught my 12-year-old eye, and I was glued to the BBC coverage for the rest of the tournament. I was thrilled to pieces when he eventually won it, and I've loved snooker ever since. And I've remained a big Higgins fan, got a dance with the one that brung you, and all that. Over the years, I've used the promise of sexy snooker players as a means of introducing various friends and acquaintances to the game. This was easy in the days of the late Paul Hunter, an exceptionally beautiful man by anyone's standards, and Matthew Stevens, particularly popular with many of my female friends who would otherwise never have considered watching a snooker match. But I've also managed to generate interest in Mark Selby. I love a man who always looked like he could do with a nap. Ronnie, his long-haired era was particularly enjoyable. And Neil Robertson. Indeed, I once entertained a less than suitable gentleman caller for far longer than I should have, purely because he looked like a less blonde Neil Robertson. I sort of blame Neil for this, perhaps unreasonably. Whenever anyone has questioned why a young lady such as myself is such a big fan of snooker, I've always opened what inevitably degenerates into a 25-minute rant by joking, hot men in waistcoats. The initial response is invariably disbelief that hot men are a thing in snooker. Honestly, the number of people who struggle to understand that attractive people play snooker and that active snooker players tend not to be in their 60s continues to perplex me. I'm not 100% sold on the appeal of Jack Lazowski, although I enjoy him very much as a player and occasional pundit, and his forlorn cry of, they call me Mike Wazowski, in one of his post-match interviews at the shootout was adorable. I will also concede that Judd Trump has aged well, as for many years I couldn't look past that haircut. However, I'm absolutely here for more demos, interviews, content of any kind featuring John and Jack as they were an endearingly, endearingly laddish pairing on the BBC last year. Jack, uh, Jack opening an interview with Judd by saying, Hey Judd, it's Lenowski, was so non-BBC it was hilarious and really seemed to give each other confidence in what I think was a relatively new role for both of them away from the snooker table. Anyway, that's enough from me. I'll continue to trick anyone I meet into caring about snooker, and I hope you and the podcast will still be here for them. <laughs> well, what about that? That's, uh, I, 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 I love the unapologetic nature of that. And, uh, yes, you, uh, Joe, you've gone through the appeal there of uh, various uh, various players. And the same, the same names seem to come up um, in, in there. You know, this, uh, sort of waiting for a few left-field choices. I, I don't know. We haven't had any other emails on this. I may have over estimated uh, amount of people that fancy snooker players, maybe. But um, anyway, uh, thank you for that. 
I remember there was once in China actually. Mark Selby was asked a question. It was sort of it wasn't a press conference as such. It was one maybe one of the opening ceremonies or something. It was some sort of formal thing, and just journalists stood up and you know you kind of in any TV drama. You see these press conferences and it's people shouting questions and it's all urgent and barking questions. This this person stood up and said, said uh, Mark, you are the most handsome snooker player. What do you think about that? Well, what's he supposed to think about? I, I guess he's happy about that. Um, <laughs> you don't get ranking points for it. But um, anyway, uh, that was uh, the opinion of that, uh, of that uh, journalist. Richard Bassey writes, first off, I just read your piece about Ronnie. You wrote on the Eurosport website. It's a lovely piece, warm and genuine with balance. I really appreciated it. Thank you. Well, just on that, Richard, thank you. And just to say, I do a thing every Monday for the Eurosport website. This week I've been writing about uh, various snooker tournaments outside the UK. Uh, the Ronnie O'Sullivan piece was last week just talking about, uh, you know, we're in a terrible situation with the war in Ukraine. And I just thought watching Ronnie play snooker for a couple of hours one afternoon was just kind of a great sort of distraction exercise from, you know, the, the harsher realities of our world. So, um and on that, actually, just to say, Ulian Boyko, you know, uh, obviously he's, he's over here, just 16. His family, I believe, his, his parents have made it out now of Ukraine, um, but he's got family there. Jack Lazowski actually has got family there. So, we, you know, our thoughts are very much with them. And, and a great from the WPBSA, from Jason Ferguson, the chairman, leading from the front as usual. Um, some of the Ukrainians that came over to play in the World Snooker Federation events have now been put up in Sheffield for the moment by the WPBSA because obviously it would not be safe for them to return home. And again, uh, thoughts with them, but uh, great from the WPBSA that they've done that. Um, so to move on with Richard's email, he says, following on from last week's podcast and the correspondent who mused about important shots on the colours in the history of the game, he rightly pointed out the less than memorable pinks there have been. Now, just to say on this, we, if you weren't listening or, or it's been so long you've forgotten about it, you know, you may have been in the two weeks going through Jake Humphrey's podcast, maybe. But um, we, we had an email from someone uh, who, very good email it was, um, talking about the most memorable pots and misses on the various colours, the, 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 the colours, super colours. Um, uh, so, anyway, uh, Richard continues. This is where I step in. At 11 all in the 2014 Crucible final, Ronnie was clearing up to go in front again as the tension rose. But for a reason I've never yet seen explained, he played forced position from pink to black when only the simple pink to middle was needed. The rest is history. Ronnie was on a hat-trick of world titles in arguably his absolute scary prime years, and the revered target of Hendry's tally would have surely been reached by the end of the decade. Instead, it was Selby who took the confidence and momentum from that night to rack up the world titles he has. I believe that that pink not only proved a decisive moment in the final, but for the rest of the decade for both finalists. And uh, he also mentions the green McGill-Wilson. Uh, I think we did actually mention that last week as well. Uh, he said, I've listened to every snooker scene podcast and agree with people who comment on the dryness of your wit, being a welcome, much-loved, essential part of it. Not so easy to pull off either. Well, I have a team of script writers. That's uh, that's the thing, Richard. We, you know, we uh, I don't pay them much. Uh, he says, uh, "Thank you for the many hours of insight, comedy, guests, and knowledge you share with us." Congrats to Julian Boyka, the Ukrainian lad, on fighting back from three 0 down against Liam Davis to get to the second round of the Welsh Open too. Thank you, uh, Richard. Uh, yes, well, you, the pink—that's a very good uh, point you make. The truth is, <coughs> excuse me, we'll never know actually whether he would have won or not. Um, because, as you say, 11 all, I mean, he only would have been one frame in front, but 
it was a strange shot. I mean, he, I can only assume he thought he needed the black. I think in that session, though, in general, and that shot, you know, illustrated it perfectly, but his thinking wasn't very clear. Selby was coming back at him. I thought O'Sullivan went negative. He started to play Mark Selby's game instead of his own, um, which didn't suit him. So that was maybe the culmination of just he wasn't thinking clearly. Um, whether that shot you can you can accurately say turn the whole match? Well, you, I think you could say it because it was the end of the session. But we'll just never know whether he, you know, had he potted it, whether he would have won or not. Selby, you know, was never going to change the way he played, so he could have come and back and won in the evening anyway. But certainly, I think that session was the key session of the final, without any question. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's a it's a good uh, it's a good uh, shot to mention certainly on the ping, and we will come back to this subject later on. We've had a few emails about the uh, the various uh, the various colours. Tim Martland writes, "Congratulations on the podcast, which I always think is a great listen. However, I felt the combination of topics discussed last week made it even more enjoyable. In particular, I latched." I noticed, by the way, I started saying, <laughs> started by saying, um, Jay Humphrey, uh, sort of humility, and I read out every compliment on here, so what does that say about me? Anyway, we continue. He says, in particular, I latched on to the mention of Vangelis to the unknown man. Wikipedia makes a reference to being used in the BBC coverage of the World Championship in 1979. This was indeed the first championship I properly remember. However, your recollection of it being the theme to frame of the day is exactly right, and I'm sure it was used beyond 1979 as well. The theme has a special memory for me, as I recall watching the snooker with my dad. It always comes into my mind. I associated it so much with him that when he died in 2004, it was one of the pieces of music we used at his funeral. So it means a lot. Well, thanks, Tim. That's a lovely email. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Richard Osman was on, uh, the great Richard Osman, who's an orphan now, but uh, most people probably know him from the popular quiz show Pointless. He, uh, he was on Desert Island Discs, I had him on there, and he chose the Drag Racer, the you know the BBC snooker theme tune, the original version, before it got souped up. Um, and he said it just, uh, that, you know, sparked off memories for him, just happily sitting on his sofa, you know, with a bag of crisps or whatever, watching the snooker. And these memories, I think, uh, we, we remember, obviously, great moments of snooker, but we, we remember them mainly from watching them on the TV. Um, and even if you just... You know, on YouTube, you see David Vine on there. You know, it, it does, for, for a certain generation of people, spark these wonderful memories. Um, and, uh, yes, it's ni- nice email there. Uh, Gordon has got four points, which I will answer one after another. <coughs> he says, taking the Triple Crown events, UK Masters and Worlds, out of the equation, which tournament do you think is the most prestigious on the tour nowadays? Ooh, well, I mean, if you asked me that three years ago, I would have said the China Open, because... The prize money, I mean, if we're just going to look at it that way, it's second only to the World Championship. Obviously, that tournament's not been held since 2019. Right now, I think the Tour Championship would have to be the one because that is such an elite event. You've got to be in the top eight on the one-year list. As it stands right now, if the tournament was held now, Mark Selby and Judd Trump would not be in it. So that tells you how hard it is to get in it. And the race for places is really hotting up. I get the feeling Trump might get in it, actually. You know, if he'd have won on Sunday, he'd have got in the top eight. I just get the feeling, despite... He's struggling a bit. He might he might get in that, um, but I think that that's a great tournament. It's best of nineteen matches all the way through. It's just just the elite. It's one table. You know, it, it's no hiding place. Just every. I mean, it really is. You know, we talk about the Masters. Every match could be a final, but this really is that because it's two sessions, um, the proper stuff, as it were. And so, yeah, I think the Tour Championship. But I think you know what we've seen recently is that 
any event can become great. I mean, the European Masters had no real profile or identity because it was kind of shoved into Milton Keynes, supposed to be in Germany, just put there. And, and you know, in the early days, it was kind of just a sort of a bit of a bog standard tournament. But it ended up being a thrilling event. You know, the final was fantastic. We just saw the Welsh Open was brilliant. So, you know, I, I'm not a great one for sort of ranking the tournaments. I think they're all they're all they all have merit. It's all snooker. You know, it's all it's the same sport. Um, and yeah, but I think, you know, to specifically answer your question, the Tour Championship, I like the Champion of Champions as well. I like all the ITV Kazoo Series events, but because they build up to the Tour Championship, and I think, uh, definitely that, uh, that would be my pick there. Uh, next question. I've really enjoyed this season throwing up so many upsets. Which player has been the standout of the ball? Personally, I think Zhao and Fan have been the main standouts, but I'm interested in your thoughts. Well, Gordon sent this, of course, before Joe Perry uh, won the Welsh Open on Sunday, so he's in there as well. I mean, I think Fan Zhengji winning was pretty extraordinary because there'd literally been no sign of it. Um, he'd, it's interesting, last year Jordan Brown uh, got to the German Masters quarterfinals. That was the best he'd ever done. And a couple of weeks later won the Welsh Open. He was ranked, I think, 81. Uh, Fan was ranked 80. Uh, he got to the German Masters quarterfinals and he won a ranking event beating Ronnie O'Sullivan in the final a couple of weeks later it was almost identical um, but uh, like I said there was just no <laughs> sign at all it was coming um, and the players he beat to do it pretty extraordinary so I would say yeah I would say that was uh, that was the biggest upset um, but it's been it's been interesting you know the players who won tournaments this season we had, we had a few new winners of course the same for Faye uh, winning the shootout Zhao winning his two tournaments Dave Gilbert right at the start of the season um, and as I say, this is just sort of building up to maybe a surprise winner in Sheffield. Um, Gordon's next question. I've watched the European Masters all week, but I quickly gathered no one from Eurosport UK is on site this time. Seems a bit strange since it's been run in the UK. The whole team were there for the English Open, but I gather Eurosport weren't running things or there was some other factor being no on-site commentary. A bit weird to see the crowd with no earpieces at all, given how ubiquitous they've been for the last decade or so. Uh, no, we weren't there. I mean, you know, all these things <clears throat> come down to budgets. T to run a, a studio operation at a tournament costs a lot of money, you know, and obviously there's only so much money to go around. So the home nations uh, very much uh, is a priority, you know, because that's a series, that's four tournaments. This one, um, you know, that money was not spent on it, and that's that's absolutely fine because you know the, you can't do it for every event. But um, hopefully, people enjoyed the coverage. And uh, his final question, he says, this one isn't really a question, OK, but uh, there's been talk about Fang Zhengji's supposed superstition to making centuries prior to the season. So I did some digging. I mentioned it on Twitter too, but worth sharing here. From what I found, and it's not clear if it can be proven, Fan apparently did an interview with Lu Song, a former Chinese professional snooker player, during the 2021 World Championship. And he revealed he was deliberately trying not to get centuries. In the interview, he states he wanted his first ever career century to be a maximum break. Apparently he's on for a maxi during his qualifying match against Jack Surety, but broke down on the 13th red. From that point, he abandoned his plan of trying to get a maxi for his first century break on the Pro Tour. Well, I'd heard that as well, Gordon. And, uh, I mean, it's a bit bizarre, isn't it? It's a bit like saying, uh, well, I want to win the lottery, but I only want a triple rollover. <laughs> you know, it's, um, yeah, but I suppose he was on his way to the maximum. He broke down and he thought, actually, it turns out centuries are pretty cool. Um, and he's made plenty since then. So um made back-to-back -back ones, didn't he, in the final. So, um yeah, I mean, uh, it's a bit odd, but, you know, it's, it's, snooker players can be a little bit odd. Now we have two emails here on the same subject. George Bartlett, 
I've been listening to your great podcast for years now. I enjoy it very much. But what I don't enjoy is having Eurosport on my TV and not being able to watch an afternoon session of a final of a ranking event. This is ludicrous. Before you say, just buy Discovery Plus, it's only £60, it was £30, you can watch the snook up there. Well, I can't actually. I live in Portugal and Discovery Plus isn't available here. It's something I would like to have as they seem to have some very interesting documentaries on there. I'm not going to buy Eurosport Player to watch one session. It's a good service, but I have Eurosport on the TV. Anyway, I think you need to tell the higher-ups that they want people to purchase Discovery Plus, then make it available to other countries in Europe. Well, that's interesting, and, and yes, I mean, I am guilty of being quite parochial in terms of the UK, but obviously, you know, that's where I live, so I'm not aw- I wasn't aware that you couldn't get it in Portugal. Um, you're right about the documentary, Charlotte Church's Big Build, I believe, is a programme on there. That I, I know Rachel, had Rachel Casey... Uh, um, promoting at one point, but um, yes, uh, there are some good documentaries on there. I, yes, I, did, I wasn't aware that it wasn't available um, in every country. Other people have made this point, actually, so apologies for that. Um, you can still get the Eurosport player, but you, you, you made your point there about uh, not wanting to pay for it. John McKee, on a similar note, my mum is elderly and watching the snook is one of her lifelines. She's already looking forward to the Welsh Open when the European Open is finished. Uh, Fanny's clearing up as I write this. Obviously, this was written in the, uh, in the, during the final of, the, of that. She wouldn't know how to use a Discovery Plus app, even if I showed her, and I live hundreds of miles from her. She was very disappointed for both the first semi-final and first session of the final of the European Open not to have been on either of the Eurosport channels and replaced by skiing and cycling. Can I either complain about this, or can you tell me there have already been loads of complaints so it won't happen again? Either will do. Many thanks for all the snooker coverage, which means a lot to her, and therefore to me too. Oh, well, th- thank you, John, and I'm glad your mother uh, enjoys watching the snooker. I guess the point here is, to be serious, th- the, someone will have a mother who loves skiing and cycling, and, you know, they would have been put out. You know, the po- this is why the, the platform, the, the Discovery Plus and the Eurosport app, actually are so important, because they do allow you to watch it. Now, I take your point exactly about elderly people and not necessarily... Um, that's savvy when it comes to apps. I mean, my own parents wouldn't know what, what you know, how to operate them. I mean, you know, they've, I mean, they were suspicious. Of, they never got the TV Times when we were younger. They were suspicious about Channel Four. So, you know, the idea of them, <laughs> the idea of them using the Discovery Plus app, you know, he's pushing it a bit. So I do get that. However, you know, it's worth saying, it, it, these matches are available to watch. Um, I mean, just last night I wasn't commentating, just in the hotel bar, and I had on my phone, I was watching the John Higgins uh, Dylan Emery match. And I could have chosen three other tables on my phone. Now that's incredible, really. Um, if you sort of go back 20 years, I mean, the idea of watching on a phone is incredible, but to have that choice, you know, I grew up in an era where, you know, BBC and ITV, they would just come on when they wanted to and they'd come off when they wanted to, regardless of the position in the match. And, you, you know, you'd have finals where, you know, the, you wouldn't have coverage of a final till like half ten at night, you know, just highlights. And so it's, it is an extraordinary thing that you can watch all this, I think. Um, and I think it's great value as well. And I pay for it. I'm not, I don't get it free. I pay for it. But um, however, I do take the point that maybe there's a generation who just don't get all that stuff. And for them, it is disappointing when it's not on linear television. But, you know, there are other sports to show. And if there's a weekend, and sports particularly obviously happens at weekends, if there's four live sporting events on at the same time and only two channels, then decisions have to be made. And they're made for a range of reasons. Some of, some of it's contractual. Some of it's on ratings. Um, some of it's because certain sports, you actually know pretty much how long they're going to last so they don't completely mess up the schedule. 
Um, so, yeah, the, the decisions that have to be made, and nobody wants to put anyone's nose out of joint. I've made the point several times, though, that snooker very often, in fact, more often than not, takes precedence over all of the sports we overrun. I mean, on Quest, it was on Quest in the UK on Freeview last week, and they were, you know, overrunning into other programmes, knocking their schedules around. Um, so I think snooker gets... Uh, Gets plenty of coverage, but anyway, I take your point and thank you for your email. And I hope your mother continues to enjoy uh, enjoy watching the snooker. John Crossley writes: uh, When was the term "class of '92" first coined for those three snooker players? Was it after or before it started to be used for the successful Manchester United team? Well, it was definitely afterwards. I think um, I don't want to scratch an old saw. Um, I'll rephrase that. I want to scratch an old saw. It's a bit like triple crown. It's it's a much newer phrase than people realise, I think. I think it's definitely after the, you know, the Man United thing. So, um, but yeah, but it's stuck because it's it's good shorthand and, you know, it's interesting because Joe Perry is a, is a member of the Class of 92, but when we talk about it, we, you say those three, you mean O'Sullivan, John Higgins, Mark Williams. Uh, John's second question, how do you pronounce Ken Doherty's name? Sometimes I hear Doherty, other times I hear Doherty. Yes, well, in fact, neither is right. It's Ken Doherty, um... Irish people, quite rightly, get quite angry that, you know, British commentators get this wrong. It's not Doherty with a C, and it's not Doherty, it's Doherty. Um, now, if you're Irish, that kind of rolls off the tongue, but not all British people do get it right. Um, uh, and that's true, of, I'm sure true of a lot of names, a lot of Chinese names we don't always get right. Um, but yeah, it's 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 Doherty, um, I believe. I'm sure our Irish correspondents will uh, be writing in their droves if I got that wrong. Max writes, in the words of poet and prophet Robert Nesta Marley, you can't please all the people all the time. You can, however, stand up for your rights and formulate a radical and workable solution for the World Championship and the ongoing debate surrounding the suitability of the Crucible as its host. Here's a brilliant plan to help safeguard the future of the Crucible as a snooker venue and give other countries the opportunity to stage the World Championship. Yeah, we'll be the judge of this, Max. Anyway, let's continue. He says, how about the World Championship venue choice being dictated by the champion's country of origin, our the Eurovision Song Contest? Hear me out, sir. The Crucible dates would remain regardless of the previous year's outcome, except if the winner came from outside England, it would simply be rebranded, such as the Crucible Classic or similar. The Crucible Classic could easily replicate the same format of the World Championship if necessary, or perhaps be truncated slightly in order to accommodate an additional snooker shootout-style tournament within the same time frame, thus broadening the appeal to different types of fans. Obviously, if the winner of the World Championship came from outside England, the new venue would have to be used during a time which didn't clash with the newly branded Crucible Classic. There are gaps in the calendar, so this is a realistic solution which covers all bases. <laughs> says you. Uh, furthermore, if, for example, the World Championship was held in China one year, but was won by an English player, imagine the story of the World Championship returning to Sheffield and the amount of press coverage it would get. Equally in the same season, it would be feasible for one player from any country to win both titles and thus instantly become a snooker immortal. The above solution would give players from around the globe even more incentive to win the World Championship. Realistically, the champion would originate from the British Isles, China or Australia, but in the event of a Canadian, American or mainland European winner, the game would be opened up to an even bigger audience if the World Championship was held elsewhere. What do you reckon? Other than the, the, other than the obvious logistics of venue hire, travel and TV crews, this new brave and forward-facing innovation would surely be good for the sport. Well, you you seem a fan of it. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, it's a complete non-starter, um, is the answer. Um, well, put it this way, are you going to break it to the BBC? Are you going to break it to Sheffield City Council, who've got the contract to hold it at the Crucible? 
the idea that you take the world championship. A lot of people have said this, not just on on your idea. A lot of people have said, oh yeah, you know, take it somewhere else, but keep something at the Crucible. The Crucible wants the world championship. They don't want anything else, and they wouldn't pay for anything else. Sheffield City Council put money into that tournament. They don't want a, a, a knockdown event. They want the world championship, and it's one of the great commercial deals that snooker has. Every ticket that is sold there is profit. World Snooker don't pay to hire the venue, which they would have to do in any other of these countries that you mentioned, or people have talked about going to London, the O2, that costs four, I've said this before, it costs fortunes that they don't need to spend. Also, Sheffield would have a contract until 2027, and I personally think that will be extended, we'll see. The BBC also want it there, they are the host broadcaster, they don't want to be schlepping to Australia or China, wherever, to, to, you know, to spend money hosting the tournament, and they wouldn't do that either. If it left the if it left the UK, the BBC would not be the host broadcaster. So there there are two reasons why it wouldn't happen. Um, I, I, you know, I mean, I I'd applaud the uh, the idea of the Eurovision Song Contest being a model, but um, yeah, it's just it, I'm afraid it's just a non-starter. Um, what would be good is if these other countries did develop their own big tournaments, and that certainly has happened in China. Obviously, we have an, an Australian Open, we've had tournaments in Europe, um, but the World Championship in my opinion, still belongs at the Crucible. And I, I kind of... Be careful what you wish for, is what I would say, because a lot of people are sort of talking themselves into this idea that it should move. If it did move, I think people would be very disappointed, actually, um, because it wouldn't quite be the same. And I think it would it would just be different, wouldn't it? Um, some people say it might be better. I'm not so sure myself. Now we continue, and uh, I'll let you into a little secret. I had to stop recording because I had to go off and uh, commentate. But uh, So this is uh, a little while later, and uh, what's happened today, and this is going to be a little rant, um, what's happened today is the live scoring broke, OK? Now, that's fine. Technical problems happen. But World Stuka's response to this was very poor, I thought. It's one thing for the live scoring to go down. It went down for the morning and afternoon sessions. OK, you know, there's issues with internet, whatever. OK, that's got to be sorted out. But if it goes down... They need to do more to actually let people know what's happening on the tables that we can't see. We can see the main table. Table two has separate graphics as well. The other three do not. They're linked to the live scoring. So if you're watching on the Great Discovery Plus service or the Eurosport app, you can see the match, but you don't see any scores. I mean, we've been talking in recent weeks about, you know, when the BBC used to flash up the score every few minutes and what the break was and all that. Well, we didn't even get that. So... Firstly, kudos to say, to say a positive thing to the people who update the scores on snooker.org. There's a little team of people there and they kept across it and, you know, it was useful to be able to refer to that because when we're on air on Eurosport, obviously, you know, we're not at the venue, um, COVID rules and all the rest of it at the moment. Um, so we're commentating from afar and we're, we like to keep in touch with what's going on as well and point out any interesting breaks and any interesting scores and we couldn't do that. Well, Snooker have got all these social media channels that they like to trumpet. They need to use them more effectively in a situation like this or have a page on the website that's updated every 10, 15 minutes. Every time a frame is over, put the latest score up. Doing it every hour and a half is not good enough. They're the governing body. They sh it should not be left to essentially enthusiasts on snooker.org and other websites to update people on the scores. And also, and I'm not doubting for a minute that they were right, but we can't verify those, whereas if it comes from World Snooker, at least they are running the tournament. Um, they put some updates up, but even then, I mean, there was one tweet that said, Fang Zhengji's a frame from victory. Okay, well, what's the score, though? Well, that, doesn't, that tells us he's on four. What's the, how many has the other guy got? Because it turned out the other guy, Xiu Long, won the match. Um, they said Karen Wilson had made a century, which he hadn't. 
So it's very um, confused and not good enough. I mean, like I say, it's not complaints about the live scoring. That's one issue, technical issue. You need to react to that and keep people across what's happening in the tournament. It's your tournament. You're running it. Let people know what the scores are. You know, and now in this day and age, there is so many channels to do that. Twitter is one, or as I say on the website, you could just update a page until the live scoring comes back on, which it has done for the evening session. Rant over. Let's go back to the emails. Ah, I enjoyed that, actually. Uh, here we go. Dave Priest. It's annoying, you see. It's annoying because we're trying to cover the tournament as best we can. This, this is my sort of major gripe, is there's so many people who are trying to promote snooker who are being held back from it because of certain attitudes. Anyway, let's continue before, before this turns into a meltdown. You've seen the film Network. You'll know what I mean. Anyway, Dave Priest. I've noticed over recent years that Ronnie O'Sullivan breaks first, far more often than not. First, it should be 50-50 as they toss for breaks, if you'll pardon the pun. But I also... Is there a pun there? Oh, yes, breaks, yes. But I also realise some players, like Ronnie, like to break and others don't. So this shifts the odds of him breaking up the percentages. But I'm talking eight or nine times out of ten, Ronnie breaks first. So much so that against Ding the other day, his body language suggested he thought it was his break-off until Ding stepped forward and Ronnie awkwardly hop-skipped and jumped out of the way. Any ideas why Ronnie breaks first at an unusually high percentage of the time? Well, I think the answer is possibly quite simple, uh, Dave. Obviously, if if his opponent wins the toss, the usual thing is to put the other guy in. So, say Ding in that match would win the toss, he'll put Ronnie in first. From what you're saying, and I've not noticed this at all, so I'm taking your word on it, from what you're saying is if Ronnie wins the toss, he puts himself in. <laughs> so that kind of solves that. If he wins the toss, he breaks. If his opponent wins the toss, he still breaks, it seems, from what you're saying. But uh, an interesting point. Um, if you break in the first frame, you will end up breaking in a deciding frame. Um, so whether that's in his thinking, who knows. Now, our friend Tony Finnegan... Just a few thoughts on last week's excellent emails. With regards to famous missed colours, now this, we're getting into now this subject about the, the colours that have been missed and potted, but in terms of misses, he says, both of my selections come from World Championship matches at the Crucible and both were failed 147 attempts. Firstly, we'll have to go for Gary Wilkinson's missed yellow off the spot in 1991 during his first round match against Doug Mountjoy with the remaining colours at his mercy. And for the Miss Pink, I'll have to go for Ronnie O'Sullivan's agonising overcut to the middle pocket in his 1999 semi-final against Stephen Hendry. I was lucky enough to be in the crucible for this particular morning session, accurately described by John Virgo as snooker from the gods. Well, actually, I'm, I'm sure it was Clive who said that. Uh, I mean, JV may have said it as well, but Clive definitely used that phrase. I was there as well. I was the world snooker WPBSA press officer a long time ago, and we were watching in the press room, and I ran down to the photographer's booth. I was stood right in line. I'm not saying this is why Ronnie missed the pink, because he couldn't see me, before anyone says. I was behind the screen. But I was in line when he missed that pink. It was incredible, actually. I mean, I, I, I couldn't believe he missed it. Um, great drama. Anyway, yes, so... And the Gary Wilkinson's yellow, it's a great great memory you've got there. Yes, absolutely. He says, on the, uh, on the subject of crushes in snooker, well, I've certainly missed the very attractive and very competent Chinese lady referees, Zhu Ying and Peggy Lee. Maybe because of COVID, they haven't appeared on our TV screens much lately. I hope to see them back again soon. In fact, I remember Peggy hugging Ronnie after one of his successful 147 breaks. Let's be honest, not even Ronnie would turn down a 147 knowing a hug from Peggy awaited him. That's better than the high break prize anyway. See, we've moved on now from <laughs> snooker players you fancy to snooker referees you fancy. So um, it's, a, it's a bit of a slippery slope, but anyway, uh, thank, thank you. James Irwin. 
Like you, I enjoyed the correspondence from a fellow from a fellow listener on the most memorable shots on the various colours. Please could you consider these for the most memorable Miss Blacks? Jimmy White's Miss Black off the spot in the 1994 World Championship final deciding frame. As a 14-year-old Jimmy fanatic, I shed a tear that night and still can't believe he missed such a straightforward shot when in for the win. That's pressure for you. Best line ever, though, from Jimmy afterwards to David Vine. He's beginning to annoy me. Secondly, Ken Doherty's... Ken Doherty's... <laughs> see, we had this conversation about how to pronounce his name, and I can't. Ken Doherty's Miss Black, also off the spot, for a maximum in the 2000 Masters. Just a draw-dropping moment, and one that cost Ken quite a few quid, quid as it was a significant cash prize for a maximum. Much more than WBST payout now. It was actually a car, wasn't it? It was a sports car worth about 90 grand. Uh, maybe Ken saw the pound signs in his eyes and twitched. I read once he had sleepless nights over that for some time afterwards. The thing is, everyone always brings it up. Even now, I mean, that's 22 years ago, and people still talk about that. And Ken has to sort of laugh it off. Now, Ken laughs a lot of things off, in fairness, but it still stings. He's got to, because, you know, it's just there forever, isn't it? Regardless of what else he's done, it's there forever. Uh, he says, I may think of more shots on other colours, but in the meantime, please throw these into the mix. Thanks, and keep up the great work with the podcast. Thank you, James. We have more on this subject from Matthew McConnell. In response to the email last week, my choice for a memorable pink would have to be Peter Ebden's in the 2002 World Semi-Final against Matthew Stevens when 16-14 when down. For the blue, Alex Higgins in the 82 semi-final would also have to be right near the top of the list. Ken Doherty's Miss Black for a 147 at the Masters is another really memorable one, though not quite at 1985 levels. I'm sure I could think of more if I took the time to, but these were just a few that walked into my head. So I was listening to the podcast. Yeah, I mean, Ebden's Pink was an extraordinary shot um, under pressure, um, which, which, yeah, turned that match around. Uh, any more thoughts on that? Keep them coming in. Now, David Cochran, this is an interesting one. He says, long-time listener, first-time emailer. I was prompted to write to support a point raised on a recent episode where a listener suggested having an episode of the pod with someone from the WST table-fitting team to talk through all of the work they do before, during and after a tournament, which I think is an excellent idea. I do have a bit of insight into this because about 18 months ago I turned 50 and decided to treat myself to a second-hand snooker table. I didn't have room for a full size but worked out I could fit a 10 by 5 foot table in my double garage with some slight modification to do it first. After spending a few weeks researching to know exactly what I wanted, I scoured eBay and other sites waiting for one to come up that met my criteria and not long after it did and my bid was the winning one. I live in Lancashire and the seller of the table was in Dorset so I contacted Steve from Northwest Snooker Services to help. Not sure if advertising is allowed on the pod, but other snooker fitting companies are available. Steve and his son, who works with him, went down to collect it for me as the seller had already arranged for it to be dismantled by a local snooker company near to him. Steve kept it in his van for a few days whilst the work on my garage was done by Stafford Builders, owned by my brother-in-law. Other building companies are available. I arranged for Steve to come and install the table on the Saturday, but his son was not available. So Steve said it was only possible to install it on that day if I helped him, which I was more than happy to do. He arrived at 9am and after a quick brew, we set to work. I've been a snooker fan for around 40 years and like to think I know quite a bit about the game, but installing a table was something I had no clue about, apart from knowing there were five bits of very heavy slate that I would have to lift. The first job was to bring in all the legs and frame into the garage. I could not believe how many bits and pieces there were to it. Then there was the weight of the legs, which was a real shock when I went to pick the first one up. Once the legs and frame were done, we then took the bits of slate that I'd learned had to go onto the table in a certain order. Then Steve painstakingly filled in the joins between the bits of slate to ensure the whole thing was like a sheet of glass. We then got onto the cloth and Steve explained about the five different levels of cloth 
you could have based on their thickness and, of course, associated cost. I decided to keep the one that came with the table because it had only been replaced a year or so before and seemed in really good condition and was mid-range quality. Once all the cushions, pockets and rails were on, I thought we were almost done, but how wrong I was. We then got on to the levelling. I'd given no thought to the fact that my garage would not be level, so Steve set about initially getting the eight legs level, eight legs level using a couple of small handheld hydraulic devices and copious amounts of beer mats that now sit under the various legs. He then used what was probably the smallest spirit level I've ever seen to check every part of the table. At one point he asked me to open up one of his multitude of toolboxes and pass him one of the playing cards that was in there. That was the scale of minute changes that he was constantly changing to get absolutely right. From start to finish, the whole thing took six hours, with two hours of that being used to get the table completely level. Before he arrived, I'd said to my wife that we w- I would imagine we'd be done by lunch. How wrong I was! Whilst we shared a well-earned beer at the end of the day's event, Steve stead- shared a great story with me about an occasion when he fitted a table for an exhibition match with a well-known pro at the time. Said pro played quite poorly in the first half of the event, and the interval complained about the table to his manager, who in turn complained to Steve. Steve said he knew the table was spot on, but to keep the peace, went over to the table and pretended to tweak a few things, when in reality he did absolutely nothing. After the interval, said pro knocked in a couple of centuries and thanked Steve after the event for correcting things. Just goes to show, even with the pros, sometimes they blame the table and conditions, when in fact it's them playing poorly. Well, fantastic email that, David, and uh, you really brought home... Yeah, it's fantastically tough work to, to get the table, as you say, level. Uh, just installing it is a lot of work, but to get it level uh, takes a while. And the guys do a, a great job at the tournaments, you know. There's a lot of tournaments where, you know, it, it's multi-table, not just in the arena, but the practice tables as well. They're installing, you know, a lot of tables, and it, it's it's one of those things where you hear a lot about them if they're not running as they should be, but if they're running as they should be, you know, people talk about it less maybe. And I think in Turkey, from what we're seeing, you know, they're, they're playing well. So, uh, yeah, it's great, uh, great story. The thing about the exhibition there you mentioned, there's a great story about uh, Fred Davis back in the day. Um, he turned up for an exhibition somewhere. And uh, let's say it was some sort of, I don't know, some sort of club or whatever, some sort of, um, you know, sort of working men's club, whatever it was. Anyway, he turned up for, for an exhibition and... Uh, he introduced himself to the promoter and said, uh, could you show me where the table is? And the promoter sort of looked aghast and said, uh, oh, we thought you'd bring it with you. <laughs> as if as if Fred Davis is going to sort of, you know, strap it to to the roof of his car. Anyway, uh, I'm not sure uh, not sure that uh, ended too well. Uh, Simon Thompson has sent two emails, um, which I will sort of run into each other. Apart from a player missing on three consecutive occasions, when he can see both sides of a ball... It's, well, I, I'm going to. I'm sorry to be the, this guy, Simon, but I'm going to correct you there because it's actually it's not both sides of the ball. It's full full ball. You've got to be able to see full ball. Both sides is the free ball rule. The miss, you've got to. It's a full ball contact. Anyway, are there any other occasions where a player can either forfeit the frame or match? As I write this, I think a player can be timed out if late. More specifically, I'm thinking about whether a frame or match can be stopped if a a player demonstrates a suspicious pattern of activity or playing his game, seemingly deliberate misses, etc. I seem to remember in a minor tournament earlier this season, one player missing by such a ridiculous extreme it aroused the suspicions of the commentary team. B. If a player's conduct uh, is contrary to what's normally expected, i.e. he or she is drunk, aggressive, threatening or even violent. You do see occasionally players almost squaring up to each other. I wondered if this went too far, what the powers the referee or the tournament's officials would have. Do they have to arbitrate to decide who should forfeit the frame or match? Would it come down to the question of who punched who first? Given the very short intervals, 
between rounds in the format of modern tournaments, including some players playing twice in the same day. I'd be interested to know if there was a procedure outlined as to how many situations like this would be quickly settled so the format of the tournament could continue unaffected. Excellent podcast, by the way. Please be assured, you're not talking to yourself. Uh, thank you, Simon. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a there's sort of ungentlemanly conduct. He's kind of in the rules, um, and you can be warned. For example, if you concede too early, you can be warned um, that if you do it again, you get Doctor Frame. So, if you swear at someone, for example, you can be warned. If you if you transgress the rules again, you can be Doctor Frame, and eventually you can be Doctor the whole match. Um, in the case of players squaring up to each other, it's almost sort of a neutralising effect, I suppose. And when we saw, obviously. Anthony McGill, Jamie Clark do exactly that at the Crucible, but Jan Verhas, very experienced referee, one of the great referees, stepped in, calmed it all down, which again is a, is a role they have. They're not just there to sort of, you know, be disciplinarians. They actually have, have, have can do the opposite and actually just calm things down, which Jan did uh, superbly that day. Simon's other email was, was this. He said, do you think we're in a little bit of an ivory tower in that we think all snooker players are always honest? I ask this because I've just seen the Liang Wenbo Ronnie O'Sullivan game where a snooker was not accurately replaced after the Chinese player failed to hit the green. For those who didn't see it, the ball was correctly placed by the referee, using the assistant uh, referee video. Unfortunately, Ang then told the referee that it should be moved, what looked like a full ball's width to the right. The referee obliged without any further reference to the video ghost imaging. On the second occasion, Liang did hit the green, but in a way that was impossible on the original shot. I feel the player must have known this, and the referee, for whatever reason, didn't feel empowered to step in and say something. The referee should, by all means, ask the player's opinion about where the ball should be placed. But that is all that should be, an opinion. I'm afraid this left a little bit of a sour taste and doesn't look good for a player who I really like and respect. We're often very quick to praise players for their honesty. Equally, we should should voice concern when the usual high standard slips, obviously. (coughs) Your sort of account doesn't quite tally with what I saw. From what I saw, actually, the, the video um, equipment wasn't working, or the, or the marker said it wasn't. So the referee, who was Rob Spencer, said to the player, we'll have to work this out ourselves. Now, the ball was in a slightly different position. Um, whether the player knew that, you would think they would. But, you know, we've seen all sorts of things happen. I mean, Neil Robertson fouled with a piece of the, I think, with the rest or the spider or something, didn't see it against Graham Dot. People said he should have done, but he didn't, you know. Um, so I'm I, I'm not uh, naive enough to think everyone is scrupulously honest all the time, but equally I'm not going to jump down people's throats when mistakes happen. There was a very famous case 30 years ago of a very well-known player at the Crucible who, in this situation, when the ball initially, when he got down to play the shot, couldn't see a pop, the ball was back in the wrong place, he knocked the ball in. <laughs> So uh, it, it has happened for a few years, but in this case, you know, I can't I can't speak for what's in a player's mind. Um, it kind of goes back though the, the sort of technology for putting balls back is not great. It's, it's another thing that needs to be looked at. I mean, they had the the Hawkeye in China, which I guess is more expensive, but that had uh, that was much clearer and and anyone could see much more clearly. I've sat behind the marker because the commentary box is normally behind the marker. Their equipment isn't very good, you know. What they're looking at, it's 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 not sort of state of the art at all um, anyway I think we'll leave it there um, apologies if your email hasn't been read out uh, <laughs> we've been going a while I, for some reason I'm thinking of a story Clive told me about he did a he did a billiards exhibition with Eddie Charlton now already this doesn't sound like the Beatles at Shea Stadium I know but he did a billiards exhibition um, and the, the fee was something like £250 but Eddie took 200 so Eddie was the senior man uh, 
And, you know, billiards exhibition. Anyway, they, they played, played a match, whatever they did. Then Eddie said he would do a few trick shots. And the trick shots were dragging on a bit, I think it's fair to say. And they weren't that entertaining. And he, he did another one. And the promoter sort of sensing that there was a bit of disquiet amongst the crowd. There was a brief lull. Eddie completed a trick shot, a sort of polite smattering of applause. And the promoter shouted out, is that it, Eddie? <laughs> <laughs> is that it, Eddie? In other words, please, can we stop? So I'm sure people are shouting that at this podcast right now, so we will stop. Um, but that is, uh, that's it for now. Thanks for your emails. Uh, we will see who comes through the rest of the week at the Turkish Masters. It seems uh, it's a very distinctive event. I mean, the carpet, yes, but it, it looks good, I think. Obviously, you know, you can't expect it to be full from day one. It's a, a place for, for tourism, not snooker, really. But, you know, there's enthusiasm there. It's good to see. It's a, it's a new territory for snooker and it's a big event because hundred thousand pound the winner there's all sorts of um connotations to do well in this event tour survival getting in the top 16 tour championship all these sort of subplots that go on that make uh, the tour even more fascinating than ever i think so uh, good luck for the rest of the week there uh we've got gibraltar open coming up shortly tour championship world championship that is how the season of course will end we're proud members of the Sports Social Network. Check out their other podcasts. And you can email us at snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. That's snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Uh, thank you for your patience. And uh, is that it, Eddie? Yes, it is. Sports Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.